Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyds Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential, the number one EU news and politics podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the author of Politico's daily Brussels playbook column. It's summit week here in Brussels. Have you got your coffee brewing and your war helmets on? Hopefully you won't need them, but with EU leaders you just never know. This week we've actually got four summits rolled into one. Migration is going to be the big fight, the Eurozone has become the orphaned issue because there's no stable German government, and Brexit, well, it's the pesky issue that just won't stay quiet in the corner. For this week's episode, however, we're going to focus on the home front, Brussels. Don't press stop, the topic's much more interesting than you might think. First, we're going to talk to a local minister, Pascal Schmidt who talks to us about how a modern city should be governed, and he's got a controversial plan to reshape the EU's de facto capital city. He's got some very interesting ways to describe it as well. I compare Brussels very often with a whore, with a prostitute, because at the same time, it's beautiful, it's very horny, but at the same time can be ugly, and it's attractive, and at the same time disattractive, and it's nice in its ugliness, and ugly in its niceness, and that's a kind of dual city, and Brussels is a city that doesn't give itself easy, but once you felt in love with it, you stay in love, you stay in love. (laughs) Then we get into even more sensitive territory, by daring to confront the issue of racial diversity among the EU decision-making elite. We're living here in one of the EU's most diverse cities, but the people making the decisions, and dare I say it, listening to this podcast, are overwhelmingly white. I don't have a manifesto for you, but we will discuss what it means to have a political class that doesn't look like the general population, and debate whether equal opportunities are enough to change the makeup of that class. To get that debate rolling, we first speak to Politico journalist Lawrence Cyrilus. Well, starting off the podcast today, I am with Lauren Cyrilus, who is our resident expert for all things Brussels and Belgium here at Politico. So he knows Brussels as a set of institutions. He knows it as a city that he's lived and worked in. And obviously that sits in a wider context of Belgium. And so we were going to talk about two different things, a rather sensitive series of articles that Politico has been publishing this week under the theme of Brussels so white and the lack of racial diversity that we see in the EU institutions, even though Brussels itself is a rather diverse city. And then also a vision that one of the more prominent politicians in Brussels, Pascal Schmidt, has for how to re-engineer how Brussels works as a city, how it's administered, how it is to live, and how it is a place to work. So, Lawrence, let's kick off with, with this article series. We talk in those articles about how the decision makers of the EU are overwhelmingly white, that they don't quite look like the rest of the European population. Have you come across any 
reactions to that series this week or what was your own gut reaction when you read some of those articles? I think the the reactions we've been getting in the newsroom and outside speaking to everyone around in this in this town is uh, is one of uh, an acknowledgement of the problem, right? I think everyone understands that this is an issue that the EU hasn't dealt with so far and uh, I think one of the reactions I've seen which sort of surprised me or at least uh, which I liked was um, it's good that we have these tough questions being asked about the European institutions. I think the issue of, of diversity in national politics maybe managed to make its way into the debate quicker than it did in European politics. And so so just the fact that we're having this discussion is a good start. But I think as you see from the reporting and even the picture we published, which visualizes all of the faces of every MEP in the European Parliament or or members of the European Commission, you clearly see that there is a long way to go. Yeah. So to give listeners a little bit more context, as best we can figure it out, because no official statistics are collected and our lawyers told us we weren't allowed to ask people individually whether they identified as Caucasian or from an ethnic minority, we can figure out that it's literally 99% white in terms of the top 1,000 to 2,000 decision makers in the EU's institutions and including in the European Parliament. It's quite a striking image where there's clearly only 11 or 12 people who, you know, let's call a spade a spade, they have darker skin, and everyone else is very strikingly white. Um, I got similar reactions to you, but some people were also saying, maybe around about a quarter to one-fifth of people, were saying, look, you aren't being fair. In a lot of European countries, it really is a very tiny non-white population, and the EU went through a big effort to make sure people from Romania, Poland, Bulgaria, all of those countries that joined since 2004 to make sure they were included in the EU's institutions. So really, stop bothering us with all of these very small minorities and and their problems. Do you come across that sort of feeling that racism is someone else's problem, that it's not really a thing in Europe? I haven't gotten those reactions that might be... um... You're in your own bubble. You're you're living in a wonderful liberal bubble. (laughs) That might illustrate... The circles that I move around in, but what I think is interesting and an important debate is also the, the question around whose problem is this? And I think this is a question we've seen also in, in the gender debate is where who should get involved in this debate? Who should be involved in questions around gender equality and, and diversity as well? And I think in a way it is not sufficient even for majorities to say, oh, we're not going to involve ourselves in, in this debate because the minorities are so small, I think one of the bedrocks, one of the cornerstones of democracy is the fact that you recognize these minorities, right? And that you engage in this discussion around minorities. I think one example, I believe, is the committee in the European Parliament that deals with gender equality uh, and diversity is an overwhelmingly female committee, while all of the other committees, if I'm not mistaken, are male majority. Male. And we saw that of, in the Me Too debate that they had in Parliament, where really 90% of the speakers were women. And you're thinking, hang on, but actually 90% of the problem is coming from men. So why aren't you guys talking? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's uh, other people should feel involved as well in, in solving the issue, I believe. I think that the element you, you mentioned about statistics is interesting. The fact like European countries have different opinions on this as well. And we mm-hmm. published a story about this as part of the series, whether you gather statistics on ethnic diversity or not. And there's very different traditions in different European countries about whether it is actually constructive to put people 
in a certain uh, box or put, mm -hmm. put a stamp on people's head, which is what you do if you gather statistics that involve ethnic backgrounds. And whether it helps to solve an issue or it, it actually hurts because you're classifying people in, in some yeah. sort of way. I mean, France is very strong on this, even tougher than Belgium, where their attitude, and it relates back to the founding principles of the Republic, is that the Republic should be blind. It shouldn't be affected by religious belief. Your color shouldn't matter. Your gender shouldn't matter and so on. And so in principle, actually, that's a really good principle. Exactly. The in practice, theory. however... I mean, like, we all know that there are very poor, excluded suburbs in the cities of Paris. We all know that women have suffered difficulties of discrimination and exclusion for, for centuries. So, I mean, personally, I don't buy it that you can just not count these issues. I mean, if you counted them and then said, oh, actually, we're doing great. Yeah. No worries. End the experiment. But if you've never counted and you know that there are problems in your society, then I'm not sure how you can address them if you don't really know the scale or the nature of the problem. It's, it's not self-fulfilling, I think. It's not because you don't count that you solve the issues. And this is something Touché. I think... Uh, I've lived in London and I've been living in Brussels for, for a couple of years now. I think you notice the way the difference in dealing with minorities is really significant. And I think the conversation about minorities in, in a city like London is much more open, partially because there's much richer background and sort of history of dealing with it. But it's a big difference, and it sort of shows that the statistics are there to back up a story or a conversation, while maybe in other countries the statistics aren't there to, to do that. And that brings us now really to the nature of the Brussels population, I would say, because Brussels is a very diverse city. More than half of the population is born outside of Belgium. More than half of those people, as best we can understand from the statistics, are born in Turkey or North Africa, in particular Morocco, sometimes also coming from Belgium's former colony in the Congo. So it's not an overwhelmingly white city by any means. And there is this strange little white bubble that exists in the middle of it. And that makes uh, it very challenging to govern as well, because people are coming from so many different perspectives. You have the ultra wealthy at one end, a very big upper middle class in the city, but also up to 20% unemployment in a lot of the boroughs of the city. Well, maybe that's now the time to turn then to the vision of a politician called Pascal Schmepp, who is a minister of the Brussels region, which is one of the three big political elements of the country of Belgium. And he is a Flemish socialist who proposes unifying all of the governance of the city so that you don't have a regional layer, a, a unified uh, set of people who are just governing one political entity. Possibly he might be the man in charge of all of that, might be the, the vision behind his vision. And um, that's a very long way from where we are today. We saw after the 2016 terror attacks, a lot of criticism of how Brussels is governed because it's so fragmented not necessarily very efficient. Mr. Smet thinks he can save basically a billion euros a year if he did it this way. And standing in the way of all of that are some very powerful vested interests and the fact that the, what, let's call them the local Belgian population and the people who have arrived from the EU or who are recent migrants are not very well integrated with that more deeply rooted population, let's call them. Laurence, what's the reaction that Pascal Smet has been getting and is that fair, given the challenges that Brussels face? I think people like reading about these plans because people really want this city to change, in a way. A lot of people who live here understand that there are massive structural problems with the way the city is, is governed. 
and it sort of bogs down Brusselers, as they're called, uh, uh, people living in Brussels, in their sort of European ambitions and in, in the way they want to portray uh, Brussels as a big European city. I think it takes inspiration from cities like Paris or Copenhagen or the London metropolitan area in a way to have a policy, to have a plan for a city as a whole, which is something that Brussels has been missing. At the same time, obviously, these changes are made by politicians. It's politicians changing the dynamics of how the city is governed in the first place. And there the reactions, Pascal Smet has been hitting some walls. Um, well, because there's a lot of small power brokers in this town. A lot of people who have essentially side gigs from their day job or their main political role. So they get a little bit money to do them. They get a little bit of power and it's spread everywhere. So if you're in that political class, it's very attractive. But, you know, I would agree with you. Like, this is supposed to be Europe's de facto capital, but it sometimes feels like a, a poorly governed little village sometimes, even though there's a million people here. And you have this amazing contrast between a very large upper middle class based on uh, people who take advantage of Belgium's tax system, which is very good for the wealthy, and the fact of having good EU jobs versus very significant numbers of unemployed people in a lot of the neighbourhoods of Brussels. Do you think the plan can knit together some of those big divisions that exist in the city or is that for some other level of politics or some other plan? I think it hopes to solve a couple of the, the concrete frustrations people have. I think the examples that, that Pascal Smet mentions himself sort of tap into those frustrations. Uh, whether this will then sort of change the whole social structure of a city, obviously you don't know that. But it's clear that if you want to deal with problems, you have to have the political structures to be able to deal with them. And in those terms, it's not the easiest city to deal with uh, policing issues in some parts of the, the city. It's not an easy city to deal with unemployment because you have such a scattered uh, yeah. structure. I guess as well, if you're not a permanent resident or a citizen of Belgium, you can also be unrepresented. Like thinking back to this discussion about racial and ethnic minorities not being represented inside the EU system, there's also a lot of people in Brussels who are not represented inside the Brussels system, be they black, brown, white, or any other colour, because they don't have the voting rights to elect a national government or a regional government. That's true. And this is actually something, this is a criticism of Pascal Smet's plans as well, is that one of the criticisms his, his opponents have been throwing up is that you would take away the local element, which means that you would even isolate more local communities rather than involving them in the politics. Whether this would be the effect, you, you can't really say. But, but, but it's half of those local communities don't have a say now because they don't have a vote. Yeah. So I think that the idea would be to involve people uh, in this town more. And I think that counts for the, the Brussels Eurocrats, as they're so gently called. They have the same issue. They're not involved in the politics of Brussels either, even, even if, if a lot of them live here for a long time and work here as well. Now let's get personal in a final question. If there was one thing you could change about Brussels, what would it be? I guess the urban planning and the architecture is something that I would like to see changed most of all, because I think Brussels has some of the most beautiful buildings I've, I've ever seen. The problem is that right next to those buildings, there's some of the ugly uh, ones I've ever seen. So I think if I solve one thing that might be sort of the urbanism and the architecture in, in the city so that we can actually enjoy all of the by, beautiful By stopping future mistakes or getting rid of some of the previous ones? Well, I guess you'd have to give the previous ones some time to uh, get out of the system, but stopping future ones would be a good start, I think. Thank you very much, Lauren Serluse. We're now going to hear from Pascal Smet, 
Lawrence and I joined him in his 360 degree view offices in the Brussels region government building near the Gare du Nord station. And you can really see everything that Lawrence was talking about from the highs to the lows of Brussels. And you're going to get that in this interview as well. You are listening to Lawrence Cyrilus. Now it's time to speak to one of Belgium's leading social democrats, Pascal Schmidt. Joining me now on the podcast is Pascal Schmidt, who is the Minister for Mobility and Public Works here in Brussels, where we record EU Confidential. And he's also a Flemish Social Democrat who has come out with a major new plan for how Brussels should be reorganized for the 21st century. Welcome, Pascal. Hello. So I thought we'd start off with the elephant in the room, that Brussels is the source of many myths, either because people think the EU is terrible or because Brussels has this reputation as a boring city. And it's also a very surreal city, certainly the strangest one I've ever lived in. And I don't think I will be able to explain it very well for people listening to this who haven't ever been here or lived here. But let me start with a reality check. What's really wrong with Brussels in your view? Let me first say, I think it's a good city. It's not that bad place. We're not a hellhole at all. We, it's nice. You can live very well here. But we have so much potential and so much possibilities that are not being used. And we are such a slow city. Uh, for instance, we have to get rid of uh, these cars in the city. There are too many cars in the city. And we have to transform ourselves from a city for cars to a city for people. But in order to do that, uh, you have to negotiate all the time with 19 municipalities. We have 19 municipalities. We have 19 mayors. We have six police zones. We have 19 social security offices in the city so we have to simplify and from a uh, democratical point of view everybody is responsible uh, everybody is competent for something but nobody is responsible and everybody is somewhere with his party in the majority but at the same time somewhere in the opposition so the political process of um, holding politicians accountable is very complicated because you get this ping pong all uh, the time and there are just simply too many politicians who can get votes by saying no even positive projects in this city can be um, derailed because some people believe that by saying no or provoking no's they can stop something in order to gain themselves as a politician and so we are a slow city we are changing you cannot deny it but it could be so much better and of course, as we saw too, we don't have this approach of coherent policy. And it's so fragmented. Everything is fragmented in the city. So we can do much more. And since, you know, we have to look what's happening outside us. I mean, we, we don't have to go far. If we go to Hamburg, Berlin or Vienna, they are at the same time, they are, you know, part of a federal state and at the same time a city. I was just should copy their model. So Brussels is a wonderful city, but it could be a magnificent city, and we are not doing that right now. What's your favorite thing about Brussels? Place, thing, person, you can choose. You know, now I'm going to say something weird. (laughs) (laughs) I compare Brussels very often with a whore, with a prostitute, because at the same time, it's beautiful, it's very horny, but at the same time it can be ugly, and it's attractive, and at the same time disattractive, and it's nice in its ugliness, and ugly in its niceness, and that's a kind of a dual city, and Brussels is a city that doesn't give itself easy, but once you felt in love with it, you stay in love, you stay in love. And one of the phrases you use a lot is you talk about a city for people. Mm-hmm. 
which kind of implies that now it's a city for cars or companies or the politicians instead of the citizens. Is that what you mean? Like, exactly. how do you put the people at the center? Yeah, because it's, you know, after the World War, Belgium made this economy through the car industry with all these car plants in Belgium and Brussels, you know, with the World Exhibition of 58. It wanted to be very modern and modern at the time was to be very car friendly. They just simply destroyed neighborhoods. They made uh, highways right into the city. They made flyovers, tunnels, but they forgot that when there are many cars, these cars will be stuck in the infrastructure. That's the situation we are now. And now we have this really terrible traffic and exactly, some of the worst air pollution. Because well. we have 400,000 commuters coming in, of uh, which uh, half of them individually buy their own uh, car, and they are the traffic jam. And it's so easy to be here with a car, so we have to uh, change that. And that's Because a lot of those people come in from outside of exactly. Brussels. So they're, they're working here, but they're not paying taxes here. It's not exactly. their fault. But they don't have to live with it 24-7, do they? Exactly. And Belgium is a small country. I mean, in one hour and a half, you are in France and the Netherlands and Germany. So it's very easy to live outside Brussels and work inside uh, Brussels. And then we have this terrible thing in Belgium of company cars, where uh, part of the salary is being paid by a car to, uh, with a diesel car too. So people use that car. And then we, the federal government should develop the um, supplement of the railway system, the RER, like in Paris. I call it the raison éternellement retardé. <laughs> because <laughs> they are talking about it never for 30 years. Never on time, people. <laughs> yeah, never yeah. on time. That's exactly. what that means in English. So it should be better. And we need an alternative, but we cannot wait for the alternatives. At the same time, we have to liberate public space again. And we are doing that. The last 10 years, we have been introducing a real culture of public space. Mm-hmm. If I look to uh, Place Flaget, for instance, it used to be an open-air parking lot. The same with Roger. Uh, Even the Grand Place. So for anyone who has never been to Brussels who's listening, the beautiful old town square Mm -hmm. of Brussels, hundreds of years old, used to be a car park until 1995. Exactly. And if you see these 19 mayors, when they gather together, I call them sometimes the junta, because sometimes they they gather together in the city hall of Brussels, you know when they are gathering together. You know how you know it? Because they just parked their car on the Grand Place. No. Really. And it's that detail that is explaining how this old political generation in this city is still adoring the car, while any modern city in Europe and even the United States is saying, no, city for people, cyclists, pedestrians, that's the future public space, giving it back to people. And we are doing it, but once again, too slowly. But we're doing it, we're heading to that direction, but it should be faster compared to other cities. Now, one of the other big challenges is that in many ways, for all of Brussels being a cosmopolitan city and a mixing Mm -hmm. melting pot of all of these different nationalities and languages and so on. It doesn't really have one identity for some of those Mm -hmm. reasons that we just discussed. It's, you know, it's very split Mm -hmm. in so many different ways. But your vision is to have one city, one vision, one police force. How step by step are we actually going to do that? Do you imagine one big shock to the system that builds up democratically or it has to be project by project, like the pedestrian zone you've been trying to introduce Mm. into the center? It's a difficult one. I think, of course, from an ideal point of view, I would like to have the big shock. But unfortunately, in Western democracies, it uh, doesn't work like that. So it has to be bottom up. But 
I believe that politicians should show the way and should explain their vision and their dreams and ideas for the city and then gather people around it and get a kind of coalition of uh, the willing. That's first one thing. But it's something that's going to help us in order to get more political clout too. That's a generational issue. You see that the ones who oppose more the logical thing of becoming one city is the, the elder political generation, in some way the dinosaurs, eh, if you yeah. can call it like that, who grow up in a political system that's not really functioning but it's very accommodating for them, so we have to disrupt that in some way. The structure doesn't make a huge amount of sense if you don't know the Belgian constitutional history, where if, if you understand how Belgium was built mm-hmm. and split and rebuilt, it that kind is. of makes sense that there exactly. is a Brussels region. But otherwise, to an outsider or to all these new people, whether they mm-hmm. are immigrant communities, mm-hmm. EU officials that are arriving, also immigrants... It just looks like multiple layers of government exactly. and you don't really know who does what. Exactly. And as you said, we call it the Brussels capital region, 19 municipalities. But in reality, that's the city, the real Brussels metropolitan region. That's the part around Brussels, which is in Flanders and, and, and a little bit in uh, Wallonia. Yeah, it doesn't work. And, and, and these different layers just slow things down, make it inefficient and also gives the impression of non-respect and also a lack of political accountability. And I think in a good working democracy, people have to know who is responsible for what. And the only thing in Brussels is today, you don't know it because there's always someone responsible, someone competent and you don't know who is now the final responsible guy or women for it. You don't know it. Sometimes people are good at saying no in Brussels, though. I wanted to Mm. mention a few horror stories, not to be down on Brussels, but to really illustrate for people listening how this affects people's daily lives. My personal horror story, and everyone, you know, complains when they have to go to a commune Mm. to get paperwork processed. But in my case, the borderline between two of the communes runs through the middle of the apartment I own. (laughs) So I have to pay one third of my annual tax to one of the communes and elect and two thirds to Saint-Gilles. And I get sent two separate bills, and the line runs through the middle of my kitchen. <laughs> and I can choose which commune to where I do the paperwork, but I still have to send the two bills off every year. And there's a huge big hole out the back of the building, because that's the intersection of those two communes and Brussels, uh, right. Central 1000 commune. So the building has never been built, I think, because they can't figure out the planning <laughs> situation. Have you got other horror stories where you just think, this is crazy? Yeah. It's Belgian surrealism, yeah. For instance, when it's snowing in a street, Sometimes the, the snow, I said in English, is a snow cleaner. It stops in the middle of the road and makes a turn because the other part of the road is another municipality. Or if you live in one side of the street and you want to park your car on the other side of the street, you cannot do it because it's another municipality. And so my point of view is that we need to reorganize this city in order to serve better uh, the people who live here, the people who want to come and live here, the people who visit the city, the people who work here. That's the main objective and just make it more transparent and more efficient and more magnificent. I think that's You know, once again, Brussels is a city that's good. It's a good city to live in, but it could be so much better. We could have so much better architecture, for instance. We should have much more cycling lanes. But then we have another horror story. I'm I'm making dedicated cycling lanes. And all of a sudden we have a municipality, the city of Brussels, the the biggest Mm -hmm. and the most important one, who is always going to court in order to stop me because you have... On cycle lanes. Yeah, on cycling lanes at Avenue Roosevelt because they consider that it's not something to do in diplomatic areas. But what the hell are we talking about? Diplomats can bike too. And, you know, the most people who bike in the city, by the way, are European Union citizens. By the way, it's a big university district as well amongst all of those. Exactly. And these people say, no, 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 we don't want it. We want everything for the car. And I say, no, 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 we have to re-equilibrate it. I'm not against the car here. 
You know, the car mm -hmm. will be for the next 10, 15 years part of our city life, although I'm convinced that within 15, 20 years we will no longer have private cars in the city. We will have automated shared vehicles uh, running uh, all around uh, town. But in the meantime, we have to give public space back to the cyclists. And it's good for your health. It's good for the general condition. It's good for the ambience in the city, uh, which is sometimes with all these car drivers a little bit too aggressive. But then you see, you're being stopped by a, a layer mm -hmm. that has another policy view. And it's they cannot stop me, but they can slow things down mm -hmm. and so that once again we are slow city and i want us to become a fast city now with some slow parts let's scope all the way up now to the eu's role in the city because that's very contentious among the local mm. belgian citizen population where they feel that eu people kind of descend on belgium mm -hmm. that they don't really pay their fair share of tax and the eu obviously is important to the local economy mm -hmm. what's the relationship like there is the EU coming here a big factor in your idea of making English an official language of the city? And how should sort of the two populations relate yeah. to each other? Double. First of all, I think Brussels is a very international city. And then it's quite logical that people who come and live here temporarily or for a longer time, that they can address themselves in English to the municipalities. That should be normal. You should not have a, a debate about it. You should also be able to get all your documents, your registration and the basic things of life be done in English. That's one thing. A second thing that's very important to me is that we have to implicate people, European Union people, who, and even other people who are living in the city, in the, um, the city government, how can we do that? They have the, the right to vote now on a municipal level, but they don't have the right to vote on the regional level where the real decisions are being taken. I mean, it's the de facto capital of Europe. Exactly. So I think that is a big... That strikes me as very odd, that the city that could take its place as Europe's yeah. capital exactly. doesn't want to engage those citizens. Yeah. But you speak of rights. Also in Belgium, voting is compulsory for Belgium. Exactly. Shouldn't voting perhaps be an obligation for people who live here? I think so too. If you live here, if we say you have the voting rights for European Union, then personally I think they should go and, and vote. And you know why? It only takes five minutes every five years. And you can change the destiny of the city. And I think that Brussels needs all these people working for the European Union because they are modern, they are urban, they are cosmopolitan. They have another way of uh, looking into city life. And now, in a way, they are excluded of a political reality. Have a town hall meeting with the people who work at the EU, not the, yeah. the big people on the top floor, yeah. but some of the people who are the middle managers or using the crash and yeah. so on. Organize it for me. Uh, do a big event and I will be there. I'm going to check to... with my political <laughs> managers if I'm allowed to engage at this level. Organize it. I would be I would be happy to explain, to justify and say what we're doing, what we're not doing and why. And I would be glad to listen to their uh, opinions. Because there we go. You we invented a new political event series <laughs> yeah. uh, here in this podcast. You know, everybody who lives in the city should be part of the city. We all are buses. You know, we are so international. We have so many people living here with a different background, different culture. Different, and, you know, I mean, it doesn't matter to me if you're Moroccan, Turkish, American, Australian, whatever, you know. But if you live in the city, you are Brusselaire. And the only thing we have in common is Brussels and the future. So all the people living here should work together in order to build the future together. And that's the way we have to see city life. And not by excluding people like the older, very often French, unfortunately French-speaking political generation in the city things. No, we have to embrace you all and make together this magnificent city. Pascal Smith, thank you for joining us on thank EU you. Confidential. And now it's time to welcome a special selection of the podcast panel. Mm -hmm. We've got Harry Cooper here as our special guest this week. Hi, Harry. Greetings. 
with Lena Abarus, our regular podcast panel member. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Harry. Let's jump straight into the EU WTF moments of the week. And first up, I mean, it's really a theme rather than a single moment. Lyrico has been publishing an article series on racial diversity or the lack of it in Brussels. And it got quite popular on Twitter with the hashtag BrusselsSoWhite. And I wanted to discuss some of the EU's marketing related campaigns as some examples of the sort of mentality that usually applies in Brussels. So to fill the listeners in, a couple of them include a security poster that's still up in EU buildings, and that has a picture of three white people, you know, fairly typically in the blonde white mode. Very white, actually. Indeed, with a black cutout person, a faceless black shadow. So it doesn't, it's not actually an African-American or an African person, but it's a big black shadow underneath the message, some people are not welcome here. So that's case study number one. Case study number two is a poster in support of human rights for Human Rights Day this week. And that was about 16 or 17 white hands up in the air with the message, stand up for human rights. <laughs> and that follows on from a very controversial video that had to be pulled amid great outcry several years ago of a white woman uh, being attacked by Asian and African ninja violent predator sort of people and she magically multiplies uh, to the number of the EU countries and then surrounds the predatory violent Asian and African figures in the video and that had to be pulled pretty quickly uh, once you know people outside of uh, white majority European countries saw that video they were a little bit offended Mm -hmm. as well as many people inside Europe so that's the context Um, Lena what's your reaction to the experience of being in a decision-making elite that's 99% white. You yourself are a person of colour. How, how do you react to all this sort of material? Look, it's not surprising, but I think nobody brought it to the attention. I think it's just done in Brussels like something we need to live with. With regard to the poster, I was looking at it and I was like, really, it could be a designer problem, it could be colouring or the, the graphic design. but. The person behind that didn't even think, didn't have the little idea to say, look, but we do have, just please make it a gray shade or make it yellow shade or red shade. Um, But still, um, we took it as uh, fine, no problem. This is, of course, a lack of explaining, learning, taking it into consideration, making it part of the bylaws. I mean, I wonder if in Brussels, when you are hiring somebody, you or in the universities, in terms of scholarships, like in the U.S., you have things for the a black, um, a certain percentage for Black Americans, for Latin Americans. Uh, in Brussels, these things they they don't exist, and I'm not sure if even in Europe, here. We claim that we are a melting pot. We claim that we are a very diverse cultural city, but I find this city extremely. They just pinpoint people. Uh, I come from the Middle East, and of course I have um, a particular family name, and sometimes, uh, and I work in EU affairs, and I work in communication, and sometimes I ask my business partner and my colleagues, like, could you please send the email, because I know this particular person, if the email is coming with my name, they wouldn't take it, they wouldn't, like, um, think of it as, well, she knows what's going on in Brussels, or she is working there. That's racism, I mean, if you're correct about their reactions that's uh, you're you're self-censoring out of fear of a racist reaction harry yeah. what's your experience you've 
lived and worked in different sides of the Brussels environment? I mean, what I think is interesting about Brussels, I've been here for seven years now. As people often say, Brussels is an extremely multicultural city, but the bubble in which we work is certainly not. What seems to matter more is which member state you're from rather than the colour of your skin. So you're identified by you're from, if you're from Hungary or you're British or, or Swedish or French or whatever. Skin colour is never discussed, religion's never discussed, and, and the, the real sort of marker is, is which member state you're from. And, I mean, I guess that's an important point as well, in that the wider context of Europe, a continent that's been at war on and off for centuries, that saw a holocaust in the last 100 years against a particular group of people, it is an achievement that there is peace and that there is a national flag diversity. But I've certainly noticed... Um, a warm reaction from a lot of people to our article series, but some other people were basically mm. saying, this is all too hard, you're missing the point, you know, this is a white continent by and large, you know, this is just a very small group of people, stop bothering us with this thinking. And then another reaction, especially to that poster with the black cutout, was, oh, you're over-interpreting this. So it was only white people who said this, no person of colour said that to me. And it was a bit like, oh, come on, you can't be serious. I mean, like, Black shadowy figures have always denoted some kind of sinister presence, and this was just applying a basic design principle. I mean, for me, I think there's an irony that in the US, where these debates are much more passionate and visible, in Europe, there are similar problems, but for me, there's this sort of embedded unconscious racism where it's not something we often talk about if you're white. It's just not present in the discussion. I thought what was interesting in one of the stories that we've published um, was the interview with Saeed Kamal, who I used to work for actually, but he's talking a lot about his own experiences being the leader of the ECR group in the parliament, but also being a person of colour, and, and how the discussions in the UK in many ways are much more advanced than elsewhere in Europe. So there are similar issues as elsewhere in, in the Western world, but the discussions just aren't really there. Yeah, but, but you can tell that once you enter the UK, you go to, to the airport and you see when you're checking in your, your passport and the security, you see all sorts of colours all sorts of ethnicities there and nobody is, is questioning why they are there. You, you come in Brussels and have a look. Yeah. Where are they? Yeah, we've had other reactions in the, the story I wrote for this series of people saying the usual things, sad though they are about extra random security checks and things like that if you have dark skin, but more than that, you know, horrible stories where they did a skin cancer screening using special cameras <laughs> and they didn't work for people of colour. If you had dark skin, the camera didn't work on you. Other situations where people just look horrified when someone else we know turns up to meetings in the European Parliament. They just look straight through her as if her name couldn't I, possibly be this English-sounding name that they were just talking to on the phone two minutes ago. I, re I remember vis uh, vividly uh, when I was still working in the European Parliament before they started clamping down on expenses, well, trying to anyway. They used to have, during the committee meetings, they'd have uh, people moving around with trolleys of tea and coffee and I always found it really, it was really, I found it quite disturbing at the time that you, the audience, the MEPs, the, the assistants, the lobbyists, all white. And all the people serving were people of colour. And it was a really, it was just a really striking example of what we're talking about now. I do hope that there will be a call of action that the Commission can respond to this article, to this campaign, and it continues. Because it's just taken for granted. People are not aware that this is really a problem. Mm. We don't actually have a Dear Politico advice complaint, question, etc. this week. So maybe let's do a second EUWTF moment. Our perennial favourite, David Davis. <laughs> I know some of his team are big fans of the podcast, so it's a shout-out to you, Team Davis. Um, 
But our question to you, what was he thinking when he went on that Sunday television program and said something that was legally technically correct about the recent Brexit deal not itself being a legally enforceable document, but, you know, everyone knows a deal is a deal. It's not the sort of thing you can row back from. And and that was the impression he left a lot of people with his Sunday television appearance. And it actually led to some changes to the draft resolution for this week's Leaders' Summit. And that's a pretty extraordinary achievement for one TV interview. It's, it's fantastic. I mean, for me, this is the curse of having English as your native language. I think... Certainly, my, when I was working in the Parliament for, for various British politicians, it was very clear that most British politicians, their audience was the British people, the British tabloids, the British newspapers, not anyone else in Europe. And unfortunately for them, most people speak English quite well. And so I think what, what happened on Sunday was a very good illustration of this, that David Davis was talking to his audience in the UK and completely forgot that everyone else in Europe could understand exactly what he was saying. Damn internet, always getting in the way of things. But you know, Harry, it's not only in Europe. The whole world is looking at Brexit and the confusion of the vocab he has used and the terminologies. I mean, I don't know, since his cabinet listens to the podcast, but please, the media advisor, the communication advisor, Mm. for heaven's sake, he's talking to the rest of the world. I have been talking this week to people from outside of Europe, and certainly they are very worried about their investments in UK. Indeed, and other countries that found themselves in difficulty, and I'm thinking of Italy and when Mario Monti was appointed as the technocratic prime minister a few years back, they used tools like hiring an international spokesperson. I think that doesn't really work when English is the main language being used, but in Monti's case it was useful because not that many people speak Italian, and to have someone who could communicate in English and Spanish and French to explain what Italy was doing to reform itself was really useful. But that is one possible way for the UK to to tidy up some of its communications. Any final thoughts, Lena, before we say goodbye to this week's episode? Just elaborating on your last point, Ryan, if you do not know what's going on, it's really hard to communicate it, whether in English or in, in any other language. And I think the current people back in London, they really don't know what's going on to be able to, to tell you. Well, that's going to give us a lot of material uh, to follow up on. Uh, I think Brexit, it's the podcast gift that keeps on giving. So sorry about that if Brexit is not your thing, but it's good news for us here in the podcast business. Thank you for listening to EU Confidential once again. If you've got a moment, please take one or two minutes to rate or review or subscribe to the podcast wherever you found it, because you'll get it quicker next time and we'll be able to grow the community that way. Podcasting is a big team effort, so thank you very much to Andrew Gray and Wei Dong Lin for everything they do to make these episodes possible. 